while I grew up on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and our farm extended all the way to the shore, beans, green beans, grew very well close to the sand and pebbles of the sea. And uh, we grew all our food. We lacked nothing. My parents had six kids, and I'm the youngest. And with them, we were eight. And then the extra produce and fruit and grain and olives and olive oil we sold for, for money uh, to, uh, to manage. Um, by the way, uh, when people hear my accent, which is really not southern, not northerner, it's just a mixture of things. They hear my accent, especially where I live, where I live in the south. They always ask me, well, where are you from? Anybody ever ask you, where are you from anyway? And I intentionally do not say Maryland, Texas, Oregon, Tennessee, no. I say, even though I've been in this country 54 years, came here as a teenager, I just look at them and say, I was born in Syria. And the surprise on their face. Some of them actually act nervous because they think I'm a terrorist from that part of the world. And they say to me, can anything good, can anything good come out of Syria? Because of all the violence, civil war, and trouble. You know, I came from where the family feud, the longest running family feud in the house of Abraham, still is being waged today among the children of Abraham. So then I, as I see them getting nervous and, you know, like being a bit suspicious, I say, relax. Why? I said, you know, they ask the same question of Jesus Christ. By Nathaniel, he told Philip, who brought him to Jesus, and my name is Philip, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't that something? Can anything, anything good come out of Nazareth? Can Jesus be good? Because he came out of Nazareth. How we view people based on their background. And by the way, Sometimes it's how we think of people. They are not good. You know why? Because they come from this background, this nationality. You know, they're a bunch of rednecks, farmers, intellectuals. But you know, Jesus thinks differently than we think. Zacchaeus, I mean, Nathaniel and Esther were saying to Jesus, you're no good because you come out of Nazareth. How did Jesus respond to him? You remember his response? Wonderful response. He said, no, Jesus now addressing Nathaniel. He said, you are a true Israelite when he saw him in whom there is no guile. For a Hebrew, it's the greatest compliment, the, the most affirming statement. Nathaniel, you don't think highly of me. You don't think I have any good in me because I come from Nazareth. But Nathaniel, as I look at you, I'm telling you, you are genuine, true 
authentic Israelite in whom there is no guile. That's the greatest compliment you can give a Jewish person. Even though we're not good and there's a lot of God in us, Jesus believes in us against all odds. You know, it reminds me, it reminds me of what Gibran, Khalil Gibran, an author from Lebanon, said, a true friend is someone into whom you can pour out the contents of your heart. Both wheat and chaff together. What would you do with the chaff? With a gentle breath, you blow the chaff away and you hold on to the kernel. That's the kind of friend we have in Jesus. He focuses on the wheat, not the chaff. Because all of us have chaff and wheat. And if we focus on the chaff, we maximize the chaff, we minimize the wheat. But if we focus on the wheat in people's lives, we maximize the wheat and we minimize the chaff. That's Christ's approach. That's Christ's method in how we impact people's lives. Anyway, so this is a little introduction. I tell the people who ask me this question, can anything come out of your part of the world? And I say, yes, wonderful things come there. I don't say, look at me, I come from, I leave myself aside to the end. I say, Jesus came from there. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus came from that part of the world. He didn't come from China. He didn't come from Britain. He didn't come from the United States. Jesus came from the Bible lands. So something good comes out there. The best in the world. Christ is the greatest gift of heaven. The quality is the best. The quantity is the most. And the duration is forever. He identified with us forever. And I say the Ten Commandments, the Bible, the apostles, the prophets, the patriarchs. What would you do without the Bible? So when I say all these things with a smile, they begin to listen and they want to ask more questions and I start witnessing to them. That's my effective way of starting with somebody on this note, and they become very curious. I never thought of that before. Tell me more about it. Now, on our farm, which is not as big as your farms here, this is a big country. I met farmers here who have 800 acres, 1,500 acres. We just had few acres. It was like a family farm uh, to provide us with food. You know, it's interesting how important what you're emphasizing is because you know something, in times of crisis, people will not be able to go to Walmart or grocery store to buy food. There'll be such a crisis of hunger. And it's really wise for everybody to know how to have a garden, to survive, to make it. And so um, we, we use manual. Everything was manual, labor, nothing mechanized, like in the Bible times. Even now you go to my village and other villages. People plow the same way. They sow seeds the same way. They thresh the floor. They, they use the winnowing fork. And uh, I was involved in all of that. My wife asked me, how do you know all of this? I grew up with this. It's in my DNA. Well, how do you know how to plant tomatoes? How do you know how to plant fruit trees? Well, I grew up doing that. And you know something more than anything in my life, Farming, agriculture, had an effect on me and my ministry. 
even without thinking about it, it affects me in so many profound ways. Look, for example, at fruit trees, and I plant fruit trees. And, you know, I have ways that they survive in Tennessee without being killed by the frost. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I can maybe teach you something, even though you are the ones to teach me. For example, there are figs in the United States. You know, when they ripen on the tree and they're sweet? I mean, I was speaking at the camp meeting uh, in Central California and Northern California. And between my presentations, I'd walk in the woods. And there I discovered about 10 fig trees loaded with ripe figs. And they're totally ignored. Nobody cared to eat them. I said, this is my chance. Please don't come around and eat them. Save them all for myself. And every day for the whole week for breakfast, I would climb up the trees and, and just, uh, just gorge myself with sweet figs. And people say, well, I want you to come to I said, come with me to the fig grove. And as I was up there peeling them and eating them, they were below me, asked me questions. When I lived in Loma Linda, working on my master's in public health, our neighbor had several pomegranate trees. I mean, these are healthy. I, I love them. Some people think, no, they have seeds in them. It's too much trouble to eat them. And he said to me one day as he complained, sir, my good neighbor, I don't like these pomegranate trees. Why not? He said, they ripen and they fall on my lawn and mess up my lawn. I said, excuse me, you found the perfect neighbor. Your lawn will be clean forever. <laughs> and I went on his lawn with my baskets, and I got, I don't know, 50, 60 of them. And they last for a long time, and you can make juice out of them. And he was very happy. Somebody's trash is somebody else's treasure. That was my treasure. And then I live in Ringgold, Georgia, north of here. And I drove to Fort Oglethorpe to Walmart. And they had a promotion on the best pomegranates. The best. The big, smooth ones, fresh ones. You know, they normally sell for $2.99. They're expensive. But this time they had this promotion for 50 cents a pomegranate. I said, this is my chance. I brought a big cart. You know how big the carts are? I filled it. I think I put 75 in there. And then people start following me. They start stalking me. Who is this guy? Where is he from? What's he doing with this? And, I, and a lady came to me, and she won't leave me. She said, I want to know something about you, sir. What are you going to do with these pomegranates? You have a hundred of them. I said, well, I'll eat them, make juice out of them. They last for weeks and months sometimes. She said, but how do you eat them? I am curious to know how you eat them. Very practical question. I said, you take a knife and you cut it this way and this way, and then with your fingers you get these out. By the way, isn't it amazing how God packaged a pomegranate together? Think about it. It's an amazing miracle how they have their own compartments, how they fit precisely. 
And I said, this one, she said, you know, I got one last week. I threw it away. I said, why did you throw it away? You should have given it to me. She said, I didn't know you. She said, why did you throw it away? She said, because it has seeds in it. <laughs> well, of course it has seeds. She said, well, I took the knife. I took one of these little things, whatever you call them, and I tried to cut to extract the seed out of it. By the time I tried to do that, I ended up with nothing. So I got so frustrated, and I threw it away. So what do you do with seeds? I, I said, I eat them. How? I just crunch them with my teeth. They are good for you. I mean, imagine you have to think about every one of those things. How do I get the thing out of it? You see, you just eat it just in your mouth and you just eat it. It's wonderful. But some people are used to eating everything without seeds. They cannot manage with a watermelon if it has seeds. Can you imagine that? Grapes, they don't know what to do with grapes if they have seeds. And I say to them, if nothing has seeds, we'll have no crops, there'll be no agriculture. You got to have seeds. I'm not saying you eat watermelon seeds, but you know, you could easily extract them. But especially when it comes to pomegranates, please, I beg of you, don't be like that lady. You, you know, you won't be happy. Just eat, eat these things. Put them in your mouth and eat them. So that's my experience with, food, with, uh, with fruit trees. Now, I want to see something about else. Mm. Because living parables give us things about practical life. We learn lessons about that. Winnowing, using a winnowing fork, separating the chaff from the wheat. What's the lesson of that? The spiritual deeper lesson is that when Jesus looks at our lives, he holds on the kernels in us. And with a gentle breath, he blows the chaff away. Imagine if this is how we relate to each other. We'll have a new church, a new world, if we just simply affirm people in Jesus. Instead of tearing them, build them up. And I learned this lesson from winnowing the chaff and wheat together. Throw it in the air, and the wind blows the chaff away, and the kernels of wheat come down. And you collect them. And Jesus wants us to know from this experience of winnowing, using the winning of fork, is that he wants to keep what's worth keeping in our lives. The wheat, with a gentle breath, blows the rest away. It's amazing how we are. Instead of following Christ's example, we hold on to the chaff in people's lives and we throw away the wheat. Isn't that interesting? Because Jesus, with everyone, he looks at the potential we have so that he can grow us to be better and better. And so, I want to talk about olive trees. How many here have olives in your, on your farm, olives? Wow. There's a certain, because I can't see you well, I'm sure some of you raise your hands. There are some olive trees on our farm in Syria by the Mediterranean Sea, special kind of olive tree, because you have to cure olives, they're bitter. It's a special olive tree, black in color, and you could pick it from the tree and eat it without being cured and taste really good. Have you ever heard about that? Just pick it from the tree and eat it right there on the farm. And so when I think of 
olive trees. Many spiritual insights come to my life. And that is when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, these ancient olive trees still are here today. You can see them visit very old. So this is why I think, what's the spiritual lesson? What's the living parable about olive trees? Well, when Jesus prayed among the olive trees. By the way, the place where he prayed is called what? In Aramaic, it's called Gethsemane. Right? Calvary is the Greek word. Gethsemane is the Aramaic word. Jesus spoke Aramaic because Aramaic came from Babylon. The exiles were there for 70 years and brought Aramaic with them. That's why Jesus spoke Aramaic. Disciples spoke Aramaic. They spoke actually three languages. Their mother tongue Hebrew, universal language Greek, and then the language they brought from Babylon, Aramaic. And Gethsemane literally means the oil press, where the olives are pressed into pulp. What does that teach me about Jesus' sacrifice? And Jesus said, as he prayed passionately, my soul is pressed unto death. The whole destiny of the universe was in balance. And he decided to give his life for us. My soul is pressed and to death. Gethsemane oil press. And my dad and I and my siblings would harvest the olives, put them in sacks, put them on mules, and take them to the village in the hills where we have a common oil press for all the villagers, all the farmers. And you have this big, huge metal cauldron. You have a huge, heavy stone wheel to crush the olives, and you have two horses hitched to the wheel by a certain lever, and the horse will go around and around, and the, the heavy stone wheel would crush the olives into pulp, into paste, the pits and everything. And then to the side, there'll be uh, containers made out of canvas, almost like pita bread, huge. There's a hole in the middle, and they shovel all the space inside of that. And they would pile them up higher and higher, full of the space, the spout. And the, and the hydraulic compressors would come down and press this, press it harder and harder and tighter. And the olive, the precious olive oil would ooze out to give nourishment and life to people. What a nice, effective object lesson, spiritual object lesson from that story. And that is, Jesus said, here my soul is pressed unto death on the cross. And precious crimson blood came forth to save the world. We are saved by Christ's shed blood. By the way, here you have to be careful if you put your kids to work. You can be sued for child labor. But you know, in my part, we don't think about it. We, common sense 
told my parents, to give us work assignments to fit our age. When I was five, my parents gave me something to do, nothing too much, but they want me to feel I was helpful, I was contributing. It builds your character. You watch your parents working. You watch farmers working. And so I did different tasks when I was a child. And it teaches you patience, commitment when you tend the crops. It teaches you discipline. And how I wish many of our young people, including my students, would have experienced discipline at home. They give up easily. They have so much potential. Because we have it good here. We had it hard in the old country. When I came to the United States, I attended our academy in Oregon. I didn't even know English. was learning English. But my parents taught me to study hard and to be committed, to be tenacious, not to give up, to do my best. And so I came in January to start the second semester in my senior year of high school. And I was going to come back and finish the first semester to graduate. But I'll never forget, 54 years ago when I came, my teacher noticed I was studying hard. And to me, the assignments were easy. I mean, go and fill the blanks. There in Syria, we had to memorize everything. And I did everything, all the assignments. My teachers gave me A's and said, you know, you're a good student. I said, no, I'm just doing my part. No, no. You know, our students don't do that. They don't hand in their assignments on time. And they complain. You're doing everything right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to give you extra hours and classes to cover your first semester so you graduate with everybody else. Praise the Lord for that. Because my dad taught me on the farm, because you have to be patient with livestock, you have to be patient with the crops, you have to have a lot of faith that God will send the rain, you have to depend on God. In America, it seems like everything is so figured out. You know, I'm retired, and now I spend almost a year trying to figure out how to plan my demise. Everything is figured out. I mean, how many have retired here so far? You know what I'm talking about. Not only Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. How do you want to, how do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be... And, and so many other things. What do you do with your assets? I told my wife, please, let's leave something to mystery. Let's leave something to faith. I mean, when I die, I'm, something, something is going to work out. And in Collegedale, Tennessee, the Collegedale Church was advertising discounted 33% uh, burial plots. If you want to plan where you want to be buried, then this is your chance at a discount. So my wife, being a Westerner, uh, prevailed over me because my part of the world, you know, we just die and they take care of us, like at Wildwood. Have you been to Wildwood? I spoke there a few times. People die there, like, um, like I remember my professors, Malone Melinda, Baldwins. And the students bring some pine wood, planks of pine wood, build a simple casket, and they carry it to the hill and bury them there. It doesn't cost anything. Here, it's difficult to afford 
dying. I mean, like, wow, play on your emotions. You don't think your mother is worth 25,000? Sorry, I can afford to die. <laughs> so anyway, we need to leave something to faith. You know what I'm saying? Things that are not seen. I don't mind planning for the future, but we can't just plan everything perfectly. Leave something to faith. And when the sower sows the seed in the ground, he got to have faith that God will send the rain. My parents look at me and say, you know, if God does, we pray God will send the rain, the sunshine, and we'll have a good crop so we can eat. But we depend on God to eat. By the way, the food here is so excellent. Such abundance of food. And, and you know, I'm supposed to eat three times? How can you do that? You know, I eat lunch, a big meal at lunchtime. It is delicious. I'm affirming the cooks now. Delicious. And it's tasty. And there's abundance of it. You can eat as much as you want. So really, one meal at noon is enough for breakfast and for supper. I go there to visit with you. And by the way, the people here in the dining room believe God made our taste buds for a reason. By the way, it was God who made our taste buds. Because sometimes I go to places, the food is extremely healthy, but it has absolutely no taste. And if you eat, you live 10 years more. It has no taste. I'm glad here they have healthy food and tasty food. Like our message, Advent message is healthy, but it should be tasty. Presented in Christ's approach. And so then, my wife took me to the cemetery in College Dale. And you know, I grew up in a culture where we have superstition about death, you know? Like some people who came from Eastern Europe, some Asia. Like, you know, you don't want to think about it. You don't want to be morbid about it. It's not something you, you really uh, talk about when you're eating your breakfast. I mean, it's something, it's there, but you don't focus too much and figure everything out in detail. This is how I want to be buried. This is a cast. No, you leave this to your loved ones to decide. Anyway, that's my culture. And so, the man, the, the director of the cemetery, took us on a tour Guided too. <laughs> and he was, he was talking to his, <laughs> to his dead friends. You know, I thought as Adventists we believe in the state of the dead, that when people die, their thoughts and love and emotions perish. He said, well, that's my good friend from the academy, and this is here and this is there. And he was trying to find some empty spot with his, uh, with his rod, and, and he found a place, uh, and he said, that would be a good place for you. <laughs> And my wife said, look at the name of the, of the grave next, you know. She said, I don't want to be buried here. Why not? He said, I didn't like this guy. I don't want to be resected with him. You know, I mean, would tell you how much my wife was ready to be resected. I mean, like all kinds of emotions. And we went down the hill. And he said, okay, that's a good place under the tree. At least it would have some shade from the heat. <laughs> and then, but, but then he said, but, but it gets flooded. When it floods, it really floods. I don't want water to be over myself, you know. <laughs> no, we didn't like it. And so, you know, I didn't like anyone. 
I said, let's go home. He said, no, no, let's sign the contract. I said, I'm not signing no contract. He said, but it's cheap. I said, I don't care, it's cheap. But you're saving like two, three hundred dollars. I don't care when I die. I don't want to save anything. <laughs> and so I left home. I said, I'll think about it. You know, when you say, I'll think about meetings, I haven't this. I'm not going to do it. I'll think about it, just to be nice. You know, that night, believe it or not, I had the worst nightmare. Spending two, three hours touring the cemetery and thinking about all of these things. I had a nightmare. I thought I was dead. I was watching myself being buried. I mean, I started screaming. I said, what's the matter? I said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Hold on to me. She said, what happened? I said, it was yesterday. You want me to go? Look what happened to me. And that was, uh, that was at least seven years ago. I never even drove by the place. Telling you about different cultures here. Um, so my dad taught me. The first question you ask in life: What's the right thing to do? When you do what's right, then you ask a question: What's the fun thing to do? And so at the academy, my first year in the United States, that's the question I asked: What's the right thing to do? Do your assignments. What about fun? I believe in fun. But do fun as a reward for your hard work. Is that a good philosophy, by the way? Do what's right, and when you finish, do what's right. Do what's fun. Sometimes in the United States, what's fun, after you spend your time as students doing whatever is fun, then if you have some time and you're not too tired, then you do your assignment. What's the right thing to do? And then what's the fun thing to do? Hmm. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4. The wise man Solomon says to all of us, when it comes to planting crops, when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to farming, do not be too obsessed with the wind. And don't be too worried about the rain. If you do that, you'll never plant and you'll never reap. Interesting counsel. Because I remember my dad and mom saying, I know the wind is blowing. Uh, we don't want the seeds to scatter too far because we just use our hands to scatter the seeds. But you could wait a day and then it's cloudy today. No, you just... Use common sense. Maybe the preponderance of the evidence is not a perfect condition, but sow the seed anyway. And say, Lord, I pray you bless the seed. You help it to germinate. So we don't wait for the ideal condition to come before we start working. If we did, we'd never get any crops. And many of my colleagues and friends along the years been saying for decades and decades, I'm going to write a book. But they never wrote a book. Why? Because they never found the ideal condition to write a book. Are my books perfect? I wrote a few books. As John mentioned, no. People like them. They sell. But you just got to do it and trust God. Do what you can. Do your best. And so here I'm using an example. Why? Do I write books, many books? Because my dad told me, do the right thing. Don't worry about how you feel, and God will bless. 
trust God, He will bless. Have some faith. We learn to have faith by trusting God to send the rain, the sunshine, the breeze. Now, what do you learn from the seed you bury? What's the seed, by the way? Jesus defined what the seed was. It was his word. He was the sower, and the seed was his word, and then put in the soil. I like to talk about the three S's. You start with the sower, that's Jesus. The seed, that's the word of God. And the soil, that's you and me, our hearts. If they're receptive or not, there is nothing wrong with the sower and the seed. Christ's life is inherent in the seed. It's the soil, and that's our hearts, and we can choose what kind of soil we want to have. In education, page 219-220, the book that Paul Dysinger compiled from the Spirit of Prophecy, I get this idea. Agriculture is the most important thing in building our character. Agriculture. Other things can build our character, but nothing like seeing crops grow. Nothing like seeing fruit ripen. Nothing like planting and having faith. The most important thing in building our character. And she also says this is what you call practical wisdom. And she also defined practical wisdom as common sense. We live in such a complicated society. There's so many complications that we forget about the simple. And that's why common sense is not common anymore. We get so confused and so much complication, we forget about common wisdom, common sense. Common sense becomes not common. By the way, was Adam perfect when he came from the creative hands of God? Absolutely, Eve was perfect. And the first assignment God gave him was to be a car mechanic. Right? Or mechanical engineer. No. The first job he gave is to till the soil, to take care of the fruit trees. If God, in his wisdom, decided that farming, gardening was good for perfect Adam, how much more is good for us to develop in our character? The care of animals on the farm. How many have animals on your farms? Do you have lambs? Do you have donkeys, mules, horses, sheep, goats? Goats are very interesting. It really builds you care to know how to deal with goats. They're different than sheep. Well, one of my pets was a fluffy, cute lamb. I fed him grass, and he followed me everywhere I went. 
Everywhere. Outside, of course, not inside. We don't have animals inside. And you know something? It taught me the lesson if a lamp could follow me wherever I went, I must follow the lamp of God wherever he leads, like the Bible says. Animals. I talked to a pastor. A pastor means a shepherd of the flock. Oh, taking care of the flocks was such a wonderful thing for me, how it affected my life and my ministry. Because sheep are not perfect. Sheep sometimes smell. Sometimes sheep are lost. It takes a lot of investment to take care of sheep. I learned that as a child. And so I was talking to this pastor, and I gave him four Bible study interests. Be eager to study the Bible. Eager. In two months, I called him and said, what's happening? He said, well, I, I really don't want to do it. Why not? They want to be saved. He said, well, my specialty is preaching. You know, that's all I do. Spend the whole week getting ready for this sermon. I said, no, no, no. Pastors are jacks of all trades. They help people where they need help. A shepherd helps a sheep. And by the way, he said to me, but the sheep have problems. High maintenance. Uh, they smell the church member. I said, you know something? How can you be a shepherd without liking sheep? So many people are confused about their gifts and their job. If you don't like the sheep, don't be a shepherd. If I don't like teaching, let me do something else. Because sheep have problems, and they smell sometimes. So it taught me the valuable lesson in my ministry to work with anybody. Because everybody is precious before God. And to God, no church member is high maintenance. The one who took care of Mary, she was possessed with seven demons. God is able to do. Exceedingly abundant beyond all we ask or imagine. That's what it taught me about taking care of church members. Hmm. What's a parable? What's a parable? I, I want to read definition from my latest book, The Believe Messiah, page 149. What does it say there about it? I, I have a concise definition here. A parable is an everyday story that conveys a deeper spiritual truth. For example, the parable of the sower sowing seeds on different types of soil goes beyond the actual seed and soil. It points to the seed of the Word of God and to the soil as a human heart. Why did God, I mean, why did Jesus speak in parables? Number one. To awaken interest in the hearers. They become curious. They want to listen. What's another reason? It makes an enduring impression on the hearer. Believe me, that's true. You know, I tell many stories in my books and experience illustrations. I tell stories in my sermons, my lectures. 
And some people, after 50 years, come to me and tell me the story better than I can tell it myself. They remember parables. They remember stories. Makes a lasting impression. And then another reason he told parables is to impart unwanted and popular truth. And then another one is very important. He drew lessons out of nature. Things we observed every day and remembered his words by these illustrations. I tell many experiences, illustrations, parables in my sermons and public presentations. And so I'm going to talk to you about another tree. I don't know if you've ever grown these in New York, especially in southern Florida. Papaya trees. How many have any papaya trees? Few of you. Never heard of papaya before. When we went to Africa as missionaries, we had three papaya trees in our yard with a fence around our property. I mean, it's really different when you eat, eat bananas, ripe bananas from a tree, you pick it yourself. If I ever come to your house and you have, you have oranges or tangerines or bananas, I like to pick it myself, fresh and ripe from a tree. It tastes different, it tastes sweet. Most of the food we eat is picked too early. And the ones we had were a special kind of papayas that looked like honeydew. When they ripe, became orange and yellow. Big. And my daughter and I had a family ritual. We loved the food, the taste, the smell, just texture. I look forward to, to eat papayas from a papaya tree. My daughter and I, when she was only like maybe four, we agreed together that when a papaya ripened on the tree, we'll pick it together and eat it together. And we enjoyed that ritual. We live in the city of Abidjan, the Ivory Coast, and my wife and my daughter were stuck downtown. The police stopped them, and that was a different story, and so they delayed quite a bit. I came from a division office where I worked. I didn't have lunch. I was very hungry, and I looked at this papaya, ripe, big, ripe, orange, yellow color, and I ignored it because I was waiting for my daughter to come, but the papaya was asked, please pick me, please pick me. And finally, I couldn't resist. So I picked the papaya, and I didn't plan on eating it at all. And I put it in the freezer to get cold. It tastes really good when it was cold. But still, they didn't arrive. So I took the papaya out of the freezer. And I looked at it, and I was so hungry. And I was salivating, and I, yeah, please come. And I couldn't call them. There were no cell phones. And finally, I decided, instead of waiting, I want to be useful. I want to make use of my time. So I took a book ball and a knife, and I peeled the papaya. And I cut it in about 21 pieces. Beautiful. And, and I just, my mouth was watering, and I said, it's 21 pieces. If I ate one piece, I mean, nobody would know the difference. And so I took the first piece. It was so delicious, sweet. I took the second piece, and the third piece, and the fourth piece, and the fifth piece. And I tell you the truth. I can't believe it. I ate the whole thing. 
I felt so good and nourished and satisfied, but I felt guilty inside because I have a sensitive conscience. I didn't know what to do. And so I went to the bathroom and washed my hands two times. I went to the American toothpaste I brought with me. I brushed my teeth two time, three times to make sure. And I ate, you know, different things. At that point, my family arrived, and the first thing I heard, Daddy, Daddy, come here. A terrible man stole the papaya. <laughs> Do you know who he is? And not wanting to lie, pastors don't lie. I said, you know, it would be nice to find out. That's not a lie. It would be nice for you to find out. I already know. <laughs> and then I distract with her toys before bedtime. She would ride on her back like a horsey. And her face came close to my face. And she stopped and she got off my back. She said, Daddy. They smell like something. I said, what? She said, well, open your mouth. So I opened my mouth, and she put her nose directly in my mouth. She said, now breathe. She was only four. Breathe. She said, daddy, you are the man. But, but sweetheart, how could he accuse daddy of doing such a thing? I mean, you have no evidence about it. You didn't see me pick the fruit, eat the fruit. Why, why do you accuse me of something you're not a witness to? So, Daddy, I don't have to be a witness. Open your mouth again. So, open your mouth again. Breathe. Say, Daddy. You are the one who ate the papa. You know why? Because you're full of the stuff. It's in your stomach, and now you're breathing it out. Oh, wow. What a wonderful lesson about witnessing. If you want to smell sweet like Jesus, feed on Jesus. The bread of life. What a wonderful lesson. People remember that? You breathe out what fills your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul says we need to be, we need to diffuse the fragrance of Christ everywhere we are. That's why Alan White said when the love of Christ is enshrined in the heart, it's like sweet fragrance. You cannot keep it inside. So if you want to smell like Jesus, feed on Jesus. Be full of the stuff of Jesus. Well, I told this story so many years ago. People still come to me. I don't know anything about you. So all I know is about the papaya story, how to witness for Jesus, how to smell sweet for Jesus. Trees, olives, pomegranates, papayas. As I mentioned before, the parable of the sower mentioned in Matthew 13. Think about the three S's. Sower is Jesus. Seed is his word that he scatters in people's hearts. He is no respected to persons. He scatters everywhere. The rain comes upon the whole world, wicked and righteous, and he sends his seed to stony hearts, to hardened hearts, 
to thorny hearts. He is no respected person. Whoever so believes can be saved. Now, you say, why some scattered on stony ground? Why? Or why wasn't the farmer the sower careful? Well, in that part of the world, and the Bible was written in that part of the world, that's how they sowed seed. My dad would have a bag in the left hand. In his right hand, he'll get a handful of wheat kernels, and he would scatter them. It wasn't something automated or precise like we have in this country. And some scattered in all these places. And then the sower. You know what it says in Matthew 13? It says the sower went out. And if you understand that, means he went out outside the house, little distance to sow the seeds. And Jesus went out of heaven to come down here as he sowed to sow the seeds of his word in our hearts. What an investment in us. You know something? Theologically speaking, Jesus altered his divine, eternal nature forever, never to be the same again before he came to this world to plant his divine seed. By the way, as the seed dies in the ground, Jesus died and was buried in the ground. And as the seed sprouts and is resurrected, Jesus was resurrected on the third day. All kinds of wonderful lessons about seed, uh, sowing seed and farming. And so, my dad would scatter the seeds here and there and hope not too many were wasted. Most of them fell on the good soil. Jesus invested himself as this sower and also as a seed with a capital S to be buried in the ground. And when he was raised from the dead and went to heaven, then, now and forever, he will retain his humanity. He is, will be always, 100% divine, 100% human. Can you imagine? The Son of God, eternal divine Son of God, altered his nature forever for your sake and my sake. That's why we'll be the study of the unfallen worlds about the science of salvation. And that's why he makes you and me worth a lot. We are worth his investment. What was his investment? His life. And, you know, in public schools and other places, they emphasize on self-worth. But it seems the more we talk about self-worth without Jesus, the less self-worth we have. The only real self-worth comes from the value Christ put on your life and mine. We are worth the life of Jesus. Another thing I want to say. We belong to the earth Agriculture should be an integral part of our existence. When I spend the day teaching, researching, 
analyzing. I get tired of it. I have to come home. Even though it's in the winter, it's cold. I get my shovel and my pickaxe and I dig in the ground. I want to touch the soil. It helps me mentally to relax. Soil belongs to us and we belong to soil because God formed man. Out of the dust of the ground, we're formed of the soil. And he breathed into us a breath of life. And in, the, and in the kernel of wheat, there is life inherent in the kernel. Just like in the word of God, there is life of God inherent in the kernel. So we belong to each other. I am created out of soil. And I have the breath of God in me. The breath of God plus the soul I was made out of. That's what I'm telling you. We're not complete unless we connect with the soil. And it's interesting that Jesus will return his humanity forever. He wants to be identified with our humanity. I'm looking at my watch. Now, the seeds that fell on the wayside, you know what a wayside is? It's the path, the trodden, hardened path that people and animals walk on that separates different fields in that part of the world. I tell you, it becomes so hardened. No grass, nothing on top, just hard, as hard as it can be. In fact, one time my dad was plowing, uh, plowing. The plow was um, yoked to two oxen, powerful animals, and hornets stung them and they began to run. And my dad would sit on the plow and the plow would go deep in the ground. And, one, and that time I even, I even joined my dad to, make, to, to stop them. And they tore with the plow through that wayside, hardened wayside. And the, uh, and the um, plow couldn't go through it. It stopped, and the whole apparatus of the plow was torn to pieces, very hard. And so, and so what, what, what is that? Oh, that's the hardened heart of people. That's it. Either my way or the highway. I'm not willing to listen. This ear and out the other ear. I've made up my mind. You know, gave somebody a Bible, somebody said, oh, I'm convinced. It's the truth from the Bible. So what? I don't have to listen to that. I don't have to accept it. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. The wayside heart. And by the way, The signature song for Frank Sinatra was, I did it my way. A lot of people feel independent. I want to do things my way. And I ask people, you know, um, well, maybe your way is wrong. Well, it doesn't matter as long as I have the freedom to do it my way. Well, don't you want to do it the right way? No, I want my own thing. I did it my way. That's what I want. And that's not very conducive to the Christian life and Christian growth. We don't do it our way when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to plant testing. We do it Christ's way. 
And so what happens is that children are growing up, even Adventist children, learning this philosophy. I want to do it my way. My parents are good and godly, but that's their life. I don't listen to godly counsel. I do it my way. And now we have Adventist scholars. I'm just telling you about the intellectual, theological landscape, even in our church and other churches. And that is the reason Jesus died on the cross to shed his blood is because he wants to, he wants to give us freedom of choice. Listen carefully to this. And so, the precious blood of Christ gives you this freedom of choice to choose anything you want. Be a prodigal, not be a prodigal. Do your own thing because the blood of Christ honors your freedom of choice. You know what I say to them? The Bible doesn't say that. We already had freedom of choice with Adam and Eve. Jesus did not give us, die to give us freedom of choice. I love freedom of choice. People can choose anything they want. And, you know, I respect their choice. But I urge them to make the right choice to begin with. And if they don't, you know, God can help them. They can repent. But why not encourage people to make the right choice? Young man, young woman, you can make any choice you want. And the blood of Christ guarantees that. And either way, God is neutral. If you become a prodigal, fine. If you don't become a prodigal, fine. After all, they tell me all prodigals come back. Not all prodigals come back. I'm a pastor. I buried people. They had accidents. Prodigals died. I'm not judging people. I'm saying not all prodigals come back. You agree with that? If all prodigals come back, nobody will be lost. But the way to eternal life is narrow. And few people follow. The way to eternal destruction is wide. And many people follow. And God is never neutral. The reason, and he's never neutral, because he says, I beseech you, Please choose life, don't choose death. The Apostle Paul, when he preached the gospel, he said, I beseech you, be reconciled to God. Imagine if Paul said, no, I preach the gospel, either way is okay with me, it doesn't matter to God. And by the way, the reason Jesus came to this world to show himself as a seed and die and be raised from the dead is to save us, by the way, save us. We already had freedom of choice. Why would he come to die for some he already had? It's to give us salvation. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And by the way, that's why in John 3, 16, the word is not begotten. You say, well, no, in the King James, look, don't look at If you know Greek, biblical Greek, you could read from the ocean. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his monogeneous son. And mono means one. Geneus means kind. Literally, it's translated, he gave his one-of-a-kind son, his unique son. In what way was he unique? In the fact, he gave us things nobody else could. In the fact that he solved our unique problems, unique solutions, the biggest problems to be solved by Jesus, and nobody could, without his death, he would never have solved these problems. Freedom of choice, we were given from the Garden of Eden, and we made bad choices. Jesus came to give us two things, to solve the two biggest problems. The first problem is sin, spiritual cancer. The second problem is death. He... The ways of sin is death. These are two problems, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says to us, please open your heart to me. 
Give me your sins, I give you my robe of righteousness. Give me your death, I give you eternal life. That's the reason Jesus came, to solve unique problems nobody else could. So, when people use that to empower our young people to make reckless choices, that's not the gospel. Jesus came to give his life, to give us righteousness and life eternal, and he gave us to help us make the right choice. I mean, I could tell you stories of prodigal people I worked with, counseled with. I said, it doesn't matter. I can do my own thing. And I had to conduct their funerals. I'm not the judge. All I know is let's encourage each other to make right choices, not to just be reckless and say God doesn't care. God cares. I give you. I give you. I, 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 I give you. Life or death, blessing and cursing. Please choose life. Please choose blessings. Well, anyway, and it says the fowls of the air came and snatched the seeds and protected. The word is and protected, not sheltered. The birds, and Christ said they represent the devil and his angels. Are our children protected? Are they vulnerable? Can they, can they be snatched? And some people don't care. And when I counsel parents, they say, well, we need to expose our kids to reality. You know, life's reality. They can watch anything on the social media. They can look at anything. They can experiment with anything. It's good for them. They learn about real life. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, whatsoever things are noble, of good report, righteous, think about these things. And by the way, when you talk about farming, take a tomato plant, for example. When it's tender and young, don't you shelter it from winds and from cold, of heavy rains, it's just tender. You know, sometimes we take better care of our tomato plants than we take care of our children. So when people tell me, oh, you shouldn't shelter your kids, you should expose them to reality, to evil of the world, so they learn their lessons the hard way, whatever, I said, wait a second. Why not protect the seed? Why not shelter the children till they become stronger and more anchored in Jesus and his word, and then they can face the storms better. That's my thinking. I learned this from farming. Remember, John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief, Satan, who snatches, comes only to destroy and kill and to steal. But I have come, they might have life and have it more abundantly. Satan specializes in thievery and snatching. And Christ specializes in saving, giving us abundant life and eternal life. Let Jesus reign, not the devil. Snatching it out. Birds, fowls represent Satan. And, and let me say here, you know, that... Um, um, we got to protect our seeds. If we don't protect our seeds, we don't have a crop. Research shows when our Adventist kids graduate from our schools, they leave the church. 
Why is that? Should we look at the seed and say, I don't want to, I don't want to have it on wayside? I don't want people and, and friends and Satan and Satan's agent to, to snatch it away. I see many young people being snatched away, and I try with God's help to save as many as possible. Finally, uh, I want to talk about the Karnub. You know what the Karnub is? Karnub, it's an Arabic word for the, uh, the carapods, the I think, carapods. That's a fruit from a tree, sometimes called locusts, that John the Baptist ate. It's interesting when it comes to three soils, they get better and better. It gives you hope. See? Hardened, wayside, stony, shallow ground, and then thorny, a lot of problems and worries, and finally we get to the best, the good soil. You know, with the three parables in Luke 15, things get worse and worse. Just the opposite. It's interesting. With the sea, things get better and better. But with the people, things get worse and worse. It's interesting. I just made this observation. Because there are three major parables in Luke 15. Number one, the sheep, the lost sheep. Oh, I'm lost. Please, somebody help me. Very easy to save. The lost coin represents the church members who are lost but don't know they are lost. And if you tell them, by the way, you know, oh, I didn't know, help me. There are people who are church members attend church but lost in the church, lost in the home. But the most difficult one is the prodigal son. He deliberately left home. He deliberately left home. In that culture, when you leave home before your dad, gets old and you want your possessions, you were saying, I wish you were dead, a big insult to the father. But he left it. So that's what an intentional deliberate sin. Can God work with these people? Can God work with hardened ground? Yes, he can work with all kinds of soils. He worked with the prodigal son. And I just, uh, well, I don't have to read from the book. I'll tell you the, the, uh, the conclusion I came up with of doing research on the prodigal son using my culture and my background from the Bible. His parents, his father, representing our Heavenly Father, he did, not, he did not go chasing after him, stalking him. He just prayed and loved. Because you can make things worse by putting a lot of pressure on the kids. You're doing wrong. Why are you doing this? Just some people have to face certain crises. Some people never come to God unless they reach the bottom of the bottom. So to make the story short, after he lost all his money, all his money, all his resources, his friends left him. And he was, he ended up with taking care of pigs. And to a Jew, that was the worst thing you can do. Take care of the pigs. Lowest of the lowest. You know, I, I, I come from a country where pork is not eaten. When I first came to America, Christians ate pork. And I thought, this is the most terrible thing. Muslims want to listen to us because they know we are true followers of the Bible because we don't eat pork. 
that's very effective witness to the Muslims. And look what happened. And I want to ask you a quiz question. Imagine you're my students. I want to know if you get the answer. Think carefully, okay? It might be a trick question. The prodigal son was so hungry. And he asked for the pig's food. And they gave it to him. Is that true? Some people really read their Bibles. You know something? In the culture of Jesus, in my culture, when you eat at somebody's table, you have this spiritual, emotional bonding. It's not just a meal. He ate salt at my table. We had bread between us. That means you remember that event. It's important to you, and, and you experience some kind of emotional, spiritual bonding with that person. You know, in America, it's just a meal, mostly. You know, just get a meal out of it. No, no. In my culture, call of Jesus, you eat with people, you become connected with them, spiritually, emotional. I'm making this point. Why? Because by eating with the pigs, he came to a very low level. I'm bonding with them emotionally. We're becoming buddies. I'm on the level of the pigs. Some people don't wake up from their lethargy unless they face a crisis reach the bottom. But the point I want to make is it was not only the bottom, but the bottom of the bottom. Why? Because he was so hungry. And he asked to eat the pig's food. He was starving, but nobody would give it to him. Which means in that culture that he got lower than the pigs. The pigs deserve to eat pig's food but this prodigal son did not even deserve to be a pig. And when he realized that level, he said, what am I doing here? What's the matter with me? What's wrong with my mind? Even servants at my father are treated much better. I'm tired of being a pig. And lower than the pig, I better go home. And his father was waiting for him and embraced him. So there's hope for everybody. In every human being, Jesus sees immense potential, limitless potential. So even when I'm talking this week about different kinds of soil, thorny, stony, hope for everybody. If there is hope for this prodigal son who got to the level of the pigs and even lower and reached the bottom of the bottom, there is hope for everybody. It's such a great thing when a hardened person comes to Jesus. And this is our mission. Shall we stand up in that prayer? Loving Father, thank you for loving. Thank you for caring. Thank you for always believing in us against all odds. Thank you for investing the life of your son Jesus in us. Thank you in that gift. And nobody else can give us we can have your robe of righteousness and life eternal instead of our sin and death. How much we should appreciate that. And dear Lord, no matter what kind of soul we have, no matter what kinds of hearts we have, thank you for being the sower. Thank you for scattering your words as the seed in our hearts. I pray with all my heart that this weekend, 
our hearts will be softened, that your precious seed will find fertile ground to be buried in. Please send your refreshing waters and sunshine and wind to help us grow and grow and grow and reach our potential in you. Be a good example to others. Dear Lord, please help us to be divested of this philosophy that you are neutral because you're not. No real father or mother are neutral about their children. And dear Lord, help us to heed your invitation to choose blessings, to choose life, not death. Please, Lord, help us to make the right choices when it comes to our hearts and help us to become fertile ground for your word. Help us to die to self. Help us to be raised into the newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.